Welcome back, dear listeners, to yet another episode of the Through the Banner podcast. My name is Caspar McLeod. If you didn't know it before, now you do. I hope you're taking notes. There's going to be a test on that later. And joining me today on a very, very, very windy Thursday afternoon is Liam Webster McAllister. Liam, how the heck are you? Man, this wind is absolutely crazy outside. I'm down um, down the coast at 47 kilometers per hour wind. Like, that is insane. It's very windy. Melbourne is also very windy here in uh, the northern suburbs of Melbourne, but uh, not quite to that extreme. And um, by the way, good thing for me is I do know your name. I'd hope listeners know your name and they better remember your name because, like you said, they're going to get tested on that later in the podcast. Well, I'm glad that you know my name after two and a half years of friendship. I'm glad. Okay, basically, dear listener, normally what we would do during the home and away season is we would discuss our top two highlights, top two lowlights, and we'd discuss the major talking points coming out of the weekend, and then we will preview the upcoming round of matches. However, we're not going to do that because there's only two matches that were played last weekend, only two matches this coming weekend. So instead, we'll discuss what went well for the winners, Geelong and the Western Bulldogs, and what went poorly for uh, Brisbane and for Greater Western Sydney, as well as some of the bigger talking points in football. Let's start off with one of those big talking points in footy. The grand final time slot has been confirmed for a 5.15pm start time in Western Australia, which means that on the East Coast, once again, it will be about 715 in the evening for the second time in a row. I want to ask your opinion about this, Liam. Was that the correct time slot? Should they have gone for an earlier one, like a 2.30 local time slot? I I think they made the right move, personally. Um, I think, obviously, the people of WA might not necessarily be too pleased with a quarter past five kickoff time or, you know, first bounce, obviously. Um, Let's keep it kickoff. Which let's keep it to uh, AFL here shall we Um, first bounce so in the case of it being at quarter past five I'm not sure the WA people would look at that and think that's the best time but ultimately if the game is being played in your state you'll make it to the game if you're wanting to to be there so I think in terms of attracting the biggest amount of viewers um, that time slot seemed most logical because Obviously, the majority of people who would want to watch the AFL Grand Final are on along the East Coast, namely Victoria, um, and it's in the prime time viewing slot at quarter past seven, virtually. So, in terms of getting viewers on television um, and you know KO etc., I think seven fifteen PM is a, a great time. Um, and like I said, I think you know regardless of the time it, it was being played in WA, they're going to get a capacity crowd. They never had to worry about that. Um, you know. you're going to sell out any game if it's in that state um, at any time. So I think they were probably looking at the time slot more thinking about television views than they were thinking about the crowd. And I think that was logical for the AFL. But um, what's your take on the time slot? I can understand why people on the East Coast would be upset about it because, you know, AFL said that it wasn't going to happen this year, that the grand final will return to the afternoon time slot. But at the same time, what a spectacle it's going to be. That stadium, no offense to the Gabba, but that stadium knows how to put on a night show and a light show, a light show, night show, basically. Um, And I'm so looking forward to it. And I've never been to Perth, but man, that sky. 
I hope that the sky is clear because just absolutely stunning sunsets over that stadium. And I'm looking forward to it. Beautiful red, pinkish, orange sky when the balls bounce. How great is that? Um, yeah. But next year, when it returns to the MCG, knock on wood, that it will return to a day game. Because I don't think it will work a nighttime grand final at the MCG. It would just be too weird. Yeah. It would just be too weird. Too, 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 too weird. Okay. Now let's uh, discuss what went well for Geelong and the Western Bulldogs. We'll start off with the Cats. Geelong, 35-point winners against the Giants over in Perth. If it's okay, I'll kick off with this one, then I'll hand over to you. Geelong's goal-kicking accuracy against Port Adelaide. They struggled in many areas in that game against Port, but they only converted 27.8% of their goal uh, opportunities against the power. Compare that to against GWS, 53.57% according to Google. Thank you, Google, for being my calculator whenever I've needed you. Significantly better. And true, in both games, they kicked 13 behind each. But only difference was against the Giants, they kicked 10 more goals than they did against the Power. And I think the reason why why that happened is because there were more players, more dangerous players, goal-kicking up for them. Tom Hawkins was the only multiple goal kicker against uh, Port Adelaide, kicking two goals. They only had four goal kickers the entire game. Cameron Selwood and Simpson being the other one. uh, Being the other ones. As for the game against uh, the Giants, Tom Hawkins kicked five goals, but Cameron kicked two, Close kicked two, Menangola kicked two, Warren, Rowan, Rohan, Rohan, Man, all this pollen in the air is affecting the way I'm talking. Gary, Gary Rowan. Rowan. Thank <laughs> <Well> you. <done. laughs> Thanks, by the way. You owe me a soda. Good bounce back game from him. Couple goals. Radigalia and Isaac Smith kicked one apiece. It's almost impossible to stop a forward line with that many options when they are firing, up and firing. Interesting little statistic. For as much as they struggled in the first week of finals, Geelong, since 2011, they've only won one, which was Isaac Smith missing in 2016. They've only lost one semi-final in that time too. And that was against North Melbourne in 2014. Jeez, remember when North Melbourne was good? Anyways, sorry, North Melbourne supporters listening to this. this. That wasn't meant to be a dig on you, but it turned out to be a dig on you. So that for me was the main reason why Geelong won. That level of, uh, also they laid four or five more tackles inside forward 50 Geelong than last week. That added pressure does absolute wonders, wonders to your team. How about you, Liam? Why did the Cats win this game? Well, we all know that Geelong like to control the ball. Um, They like to pass it around, have lots of uncontested possessions. That happens regardless of whether they win the game or lose the game most weeks anyway. Um, But that actually converted into the scoreline in this game because they had the lead virtually all, all game. Um, and then they steadily kind of broke away in the second half. They were up by, you know, a respectable 15 points uh, at half time. GWS would have been positive thinking, yep, that's only a couple of goals. We can get right back in this by, you know, coming into the last quarter. But the third quarter, Geelong really broke away. They got out to 32 points and that really set an uphill battle for GWS. Um, 
who actually had a, a reasonable game in many departments. But I think the big difference is that Geelong had 8% more disposal, disposal efficiency around the ground. Um, so, you know, GWS were always going to struggle if Geelong were effective with their ball use, and they were. And that converted into forward 50 use being a lot better as well, having uh, an extra 10 scoring shots. Um, and, you know, GWS only had, I think, one multiple goal kicker in the game. Um, and, you know, when you've got Hawkins who kicks five and, you know, a plethora of other players who managed to get multiple goals for Geelong, like you said, you know, not many happened the week prior against Port Adelaide, but a lot of players did for this game against um, GWS, it's always going to make it difficult. Um, so I think that Geelong did really well controlling the game and made the most of their forward 50s. I think that was probably where the game was won for them predominantly. You would have been happy with this result, Liam. Bulldogs winning by one solitary behind against Brisbane in one of the best semifinals of probably all time, at least of the last 20 years or so. An absolute thriller at the Gabba for the second time in three years. Brisbane are out in straight sets. More importantly, the Dogs go through to a prelim final for the first time since 2016. Uh, why not? I'll let you start off with this one. Why did the Dogs win? Well, I mean, I think what the Bulldogs did exceptionally well is they managed the ruck situation well. Obviously, the big O, McInerney, killed it in the in the ruck contest. He had an absolutely terrific game, by the way. I don't know how many times I was like, oh, there he is again, taking a mark or winning the tap out, etc. He was immense for, for Brisbane. But the Bulldogs really managed that storm really well because... Like I said, McInerney won the majority of the hitouts. He controlled the game in that capacity, but the Bulldogs midfield, which is one of the best in the competition, managed to rove to him. And it looked like you had McInerney playing for the Bulldogs as their ruckman, the way that they were roving to him. It was absolutely brilliant performance. Um, Jack McRae was unbelievable, 39 disposals. And I think Brisbane for the majority of the game were arguably the better team, but I think the Bulldogs did really well to hang in there. And then... You know, they, they, they stuck within three goals pretty much the whole game. They never let Brisbane, despite being dominant for large periods of the game, get away from them. And I think that's what really good teams do. They manage to stay in the game even when they look like they're going to get overrun. And that just allowed the Bulldogs to kind of bide their time. And then when they had their run, they managed to hold Brisbane off long enough and obviously sneak over the line in the end. So I think uh, the ruck contest and their resilience is what I'd put it down to for the Bulldogs. Brisbane had 14 more inside 50s than the Dogs, 68 to 54. And yet the Dogs were so much more efficient than Brisbane inside forward 50. And I think that speaks to the Dogs' pressure and their calm under Brisbane pressure. Speaking of Brisbane pressure, that start, great first quarter from Brisbane. Many teams, especially facing the Lions at the Gabba, would have folded under that amount of pressure. And yet, Come the last quarter, Dogs kicked the first three or four goals. All of a sudden, everybody's going, oh, hold on. What's happening here? And that starts to put doubt into the mind of Brisbane players. And so fantastic effort from the Bulldogs. But now we have to discuss the losers. And let's start with Brisbane. As I just mentioned, 14 more inside 50s. How do you lose a game when you have 14 more inside 50s one thing and one thing only well okay not just one thing only 
couple of things. When make sure you know how many things you want to discuss, Casper. <laughs> don't don't false advertise here. Twenty twenty things. No no. <laughs> when Cam Rayner and Hipwood went down, many people thought, "How on earth can Brisbane kick a high enough score?" I think in hindsight, and no disrespect to uh, Collingwood, West Coast, and whoever Brisbane played in round twenty. Fremantle. Was it Fremantle? I'm pretty sure it was Fremantle, yeah. I remember us having a discussion about Brisbane's last three games a few podcasts ago that I was on, and we were discussing their final three games, which were West Coast, Fremantle, and Collingwood. And the big discussion point was, obviously, with the Fremantle-West Coast game because it was going to decide who made the eight. In the end, neither. <laughs> you are indeed correct. It was, um, it was Fremantle, then Collingwood, and then West Coast. No disrespect to those teams. A little, di- little bit of disrespect to those teams. They aren't necessarily the best defences in the competition. And so I kind of feel like Brisbane were able to put up high scores against them, but because their defences were really easy to score against. We look at Brisbane's scores, 118 points against Fremantle, 142 points against Collingwood, 125 points against West Coast. But as soon as you play against really good defences, 60 points against Melbourne, 78 points against the Dogs. And part of that is because, aside from Charlie Cameron, who's been brilliant, kicked eight goals across both finals, they had no one else stand up. Joey Danaher kicked one goal across both finals. Massive opportunity for him to stand up, and he did not. So the pressure is going to come on him next year because Brisbane didn't bring him in so he can kick a goal in every single home and away game. They brought him in so that he can help them win premierships. And off of that, without being too harsh to Joe, this year he failed. That doesn't mean he'll fail in future. This year he failed. What about you, Liam? You're watching that game very, very closely, I'm sure. Why did Brisbane fluff up? I'm sorry, I had a second reason. Second reason was... So you're even losing count when you start listing them off. Second reason was... Second reason was... uh, Repeated inside 50s towards the end of the game and just constantly turning the ball over. Just constantly turning the ball over. That last kick by Zorko that went out of bounds on the full, prime example. I don't know if it was just a missed kick or if he was trying to kick the miracle torpedo from 65 metres out. But that needed to go to space for a, uh, for a forward to lead into. That needed to go to a target. And instead, he kicked it to a target that was sitting in the freaking second tier. So those are the two reasons why. Now you may speak. Yeah, so like I said earlier, a lot of the things you said I'll, I'll touch on as well because I think I agree with a lot of the things you've said. Um, but like I said earlier, the Bulldogs managed the ruck situation well. McInerney won 13 uh, more hitouts for for Brisbane, 45 to 32, but the Bulldogs had 10 more clearances, 47 to 37. So if you've got a Ruckman winning a lot more hitouts, you should be at least, you know, being level or slightly ahead in the clearances, but they didn't match the Bulldogs midfield. Granted, it's very hard. They've got a tremendous midfield, but I think if I was Fagan after the game, I'd be looking at that and saying that was a big reason why they struggled. 
That being said, though, despite losing the majority of the clearances, like you said, they did have more inside 50s. So they did manage to get a, a flow on the ball, even from, you know, potentially losing the initial clearance. They managed to make it get from their own defensive 50 to their forward 50. But their efficiency inside 50 was 7% lower than the Bulldogs. So like you kind of said, they just weren't making it count when they got in there. Um, and I said earlier, it looked like, you know, there was periods in the game where Brisbane would break away. Cameron kicked three in the first quarter, I think. They looked like they were ready to rip the dogs apart, but they, they didn't manage to keep it going. And the Bulldogs, like I said, hung in there. Um, and there was some really great, like, I think, you know, I said Cameron was really good in the first quarter. I think Easton Wood, who was his direct opponent, really came good um, for the majority of the game after that. Um, and also Caleb Daniel at the back, as he always is, was so effective with the ball coming out of their defensive 50. So Easton Wood, more like Easton Good. <laughs> Brilliant. But it was a very good performance from him, uh, you know, aside from that first quarter. It's, but, um, yeah, I think Brisbane just, they're, they're a little bit ineffective despite having a lot of the key areas. They had, like I said, they had more hitouts. They had, um, you know, more inside 50s, but the Bulldogs were more effective, I think. And I think that's where the game was lost for Brisbane. Now let's get on to the GWS Giants, ignoring the fact that I nearly just broke a light. <laughs> Sorry, Mum, if you're listening to this. I know for a fact you're listening to this. Um, Giants. I think the thing that went poorly for them is that their defense, such a young defense with so many injuries out being so good this year and was so good against the Swans, they just kind of collapsed under the Geelong pressure. And a collapse is not the best way to put it, but consider this. The Swans against the Giants in the elimination final had 65 inside 50s. And yet, only 23 scoring shots. That's pretty impressive. Geelong, I think, had 49 inside 50s and yet had 28 scoring shots. You give an, op- you give an opposition more opportunities to score. If they're a good team like Geelong, they're going to take advantage of that. Sydney wasn't good enough, obviously. So I'm going to stop talking about the Swans because it hurts too much still. But speaking of that game against Sydney, Toby Green being out robbed the Giants of a goal kicking option. And then Hulk Hogan himself being taken out of the game just beforehand. They are your two most dangerous options in the forward line. Not to forget Jeremy Finlayson also, who was missing from the game, another regular goal kicker. That's three. <laughs> three of your most dangerous goal kickers out. No wonder they struggled. Is it fair to say they struggled? I feel like the 35-point margin kind of flattered the Cats in the end. But overall... Also, also Himmelberg had to move forward, and he's such a a great swingman. They could have really done with his work in defence. Like you said, though, they were so stretched at both ends of the field, they ended up deciding to move him forward, and it left the defence exposed. Toby Green owns his... owes his, his teammates like flowers or something <laughs> or like gift vouchers something because his absence really 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 hurt them and it's going to hurt early <laughs> next year too next dinner's on me boys when we're out of lockdown <laughs> exactly hey i've got a question for you so giants are now out 
that game against Geelong was game one. Let's imagine that the, the suspension doesn't get extended. I would be shocked if it doesn't get extended, but let's say it doesn't, stays at three games. Does that count prelim final and the grand final if the Giants aren't playing, or will that count round one, round two next year? I believe that will include round one, round two next year, because I'm okay. pretty sure it always counts the games that the team play. So I imagine it excludes rounds that they're not included in. Like if there was a bye, for instance, I imagine but it would what, not include no, then that, No, but then that's my point. If it doesn't include... Oh, okay, no, I get what you mean. Yeah, okay, no, I get what you mean. Okay. Um, how about you, Liam? Why did the Giants... Um, in in a similar sense, not to the extent that it was with Brisbane, but I think again it was a lack of efficiency in the forward line. Like you said, obviously the defence struggled. I think Geelong kicked over hundred points in the game, one hundred and three, I believe, to sixty eight was the final score, or something along those lines. Um, so obviously the defence also struggled. If any side's kicking hundred points, it does mean that your defence wasn't probably overly impressive, but. They had the same amount of inside 50s. They both had 49 apiece um, and GWS had a couple more clearances. So, you know, those are arguably two of the most important stats in the game when you're looking at, you know, okay, how was the balance of play? Um, but ultimately, it's all good winning, you know, the initial balls and getting it inside there, but you need to do something with it once it's in there. And, you know, similar to the Bulldogs, you know, they had 7% more efficiency inside 50 for the overall game, Geelong were almost 10% more efficient. So obviously I, I haven't got the numbers for inside 50, but I imagine that would also be more than GWS's efficiency um, considering they managed an extra 10 scoring shots. Um, but like you said, obviously missing so many key players in the forward line, uh, Toby Green uh, being the main one. I mean, he's the sort of player, he, he's like Charlie Cameron. He can turn nothing into something. The ball can come in there. It'll be one-on-one -on -one with someone. The defender will have front position. He'll give him a little nudge, you know, within the rules or the ball will slip out the back. And once he's off, he's off. And players like Charlie Cameron and Toby Green, they're players that any team would be lucky to have in there because they're, they're opportunists. They turn, you know, something that looks completely, you know, set up. Yep, the defence has got it solved. And the next thing you know, the ball's going through the two sticks and the opposition has six points. So I think, like you said, missing a lot of key forwards was obviously a big problem, but the defence was also <laughs> a big problem. So I think ultimately both ends was the issue. They they won the midfield battle or were at least competitive in the midfield battle, winning, you know, the clearances and getting the ball inside the 50. But when the ball was at either end of the field, I think Geelong had their number. Yep, fair point. Giants had 18 scoring shots from 49 inside 50s. So any mathematicians, you can figure it out. I want to ask you, Brisbane going forward, massive speculation about Lockie Neal. Would he go back to Western Australia? Would he go back to Fremantle? Would Brisbane allow him to go back to Fremantle, considering that he is contracted for a further two years? Well, now he's talked to the club at Brisbane, and he has said that I am staying. That speculation media has gone too far, shocker, and I am staying. So I want to ask you, Liam, uh, what does it mean? for Lockie Neal and what does it mean for Brisbane more importantly now that he is staying god that wind is absolutely <laughs> insane I'm so say, it's like it's like you're sitting out sitting outside in the thunder or something <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like that I honestly it's ridiculous okay there are tree the tree like um oh god the words just escaped me but the 
entire tree, not just branches, like entire trees are shaking. That's how strong the wind is. I'm not going outside today. Forget it. I'm not going outside. It's not happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back to Lockie Neal, obviously. But um, I think it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a massive, uh, you know, massive news for Brisbane. Um, <laughs> speculation media, as they always do. You know, got to get a headline, as, the, as us media students and journalists know. Um, but I think... You know, we discussed this before we actually started the podcast, and I said that if any team was in a position to probably lose a Brownlow medalist, granted nobody wants to lose a Brownlow medalist playing for their team, but I think Brisbane are one of the teams with such a good squad that, and such a good uh, history over the last couple of years of recruitment that they would probably manage it fairly well. They'd probably get a couple of good uh, draft picks or get a couple of players out of the deal, and they'd probably manage the situation really well. Um, but the fact that have managed to keep a hold of him is massive news for them uh, and obviously a bit of a blow for Frio who would have obviously <laughs> taken a Brownlow medalist um, and I think had Fremantle got a hold of him it would have been great news for them because obviously there's lots of um, speculation around the future of uh, Sarah and where you know Sarah Chera however you want to pronounce it and uh, where he'll be playing next year obviously Carlton are the big uh, team that have been thrown around in the uh, speculation media again um so had you know should that move go ahead Lockie Neal would have been a great replacement for him but uh you know replacement upgrade even but um I think for Brisbane I think obviously keeping a hold of a Brownlow medalist uh, and having such a great team around him it sets them well going into the future and you know they've had a lot of problems in finals in recent years they've only won one of their last five finals and probably should have done a lot better over the last couple of years but to team that's still young um, and with experience and players of his caliber they're they're set well for the future still in my opinion yep i would 110 percent uh agree with that man brisbane supporters must have been sweating bullets with with the just the thought of Lockie neal not playing for them anymore my goodness gracious me a lot of officials at brisbane were also going what the heck is happening what is going on? But good for them that he is indeed staying. As for the Giants, Toby Green. Now, surely I get he's like the best player on their team. I get it, right? And I get it that he can sometimes seem as the best player in the competition, the most consequential player in the competition. Unfortunately, part of the reason why he's so consequential is because of his decision-making in terms of getting suspended. So, excuse me, frequently, pardon me. I had an apple 30 minutes ago and that was uh, that burp with the apple coming up to say hello. Um, surely he cannot remain part of the leadership team at GWS. I mean, surely, surely he can't do that. What do you think, Liam? Surely, surely he has to be stripped of his role in that leadership group. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. I think, you know, there's no doubting that the players at GWS look up to him and, you know, for good reason. He's a great player. He's one of the most influential and you know powerful players who can influence a game you know every team has one or two good players but I think any team in the competition would say that in terms of his ability on the field they'd take him um you know I, I look at him and I see like I said I think Charlie Cameron is the most similar player in terms of influence they're small forwards who you know might be small forwards by you know title but can kick five six seven goals in a game because they're that explosive and they're that creative um, but no matter how good you are on the field, that doesn't instantly entitle you to a leadership role. 
and Toby Green has just been <laughs> constantly getting you know himself on the wrong end of the the stick when it comes to being in the news. Um, and I think you know there's you know there's no doubting he's talented and how well he's looked up to, but he's a fiery character, which is good. You need players like that in your team. But there's a difference between being fiery, you know, like a Pal Pepper for Port Adelaide or a Maynard for Collingwood. Um, but then taking it too far and obviously instead of just being, you know, a fiery character, being an aggressive player and also being, you know, a, a disrespectful player to, you know, the likes of the umpires. You know who he reminds me of? Barry Hall. He reminds me of Barry Hall. Yeah. At his best, Barry Hall was probably the best forward in the competition at that time. Yeah. And that's saying a lot considering that's saying a lot considering that there was also, you know, Rocker at Collingwood and Lloyd at Essendon. And all these other great forwards, but Barry Hall, I think, probably could have laid claim to the best forward during that time if he did. If he, he got suspended all the time, though, he got yeah. suspended all the time. Yeah, Fev as well in that debate, obviously. So similar, similar as well. Obviously, and both had their own uh, issues off and on field. I want to um, ask you. I want to ask you, Toby Green, vice captain this year for the Giants, Stephen Canelio captain for the last two seasons do they remain do either of them remain in those positions heading into 2022 and if not who should replace them um well definitely toby green shouldn't be in that role um i'd I'd take him out of the vice captain role um or the assistant captain role whichever way you want to look at it um but i think that i'm surprised that phil davis got dropped to be honest from the role I, i thought he was a really good captain for gws few years ago well he's back into leadership um he's back into leadership role in 2021 so he's back in the uh leadership group yeah so obviously i think he should re-enter the frame um and obviously maybe take up the role that will be dropped by toby green um i think caniglio's you know a, a good leader he's a good player um for me i think either of him or phil davis are good leaders um, and then it's just about deciding which you want to take the reins. Like I said, I think it was a bit harsh to drop Phil Davis out originally because I thought he was a very good captain. But obviously, um, you know, they saw a, a reason for putting Caniglio into that role instead. Um, so I, I think it's just about deciding between those two. I don't think, you know, Toby Green in that debate for me. I know it's the players, normally the players who vote for their respective leaders. If I was a player, here's what I would say. Captaincy, looking at the leadership group, if it doesn't change next year, Josh Kelly. I mean, come on. He's arguably their best midfielder. And he's their best... Is he a young player? No, he's not that young. He looks young. But no, I don't think he's that young. So he's one of their best players. One of their most consistent players. And unlike Toby Green, I don't think he's ever been suspended. And secondly, if you want one of those aggressives in one of those leadership roles, why not get Matt DeBoer as the vice captain? That's what I would do. Anyway, that's what I would do. Um, let's get on to the prelim finals. Starts on Friday night football at Optus Stadium, Melbourne versus Geelong. Melbourne, opportunity to play in their first grand final since 2000. Their best chance to win a premiership since their last one in 1964. However, the last time that they were in Perth on prelim final weekend, didn't go so well for them. Geelong, on the other hand, had the weight of expectations on their shoulders and 
while their record in semifinals have been very good, last year, when they won in the prelim final, it broke a streak of losing a prelim final in 2013, 2016, 2017, and 2019. So my question is to you, Liam. Both teams under a lot of pressure for very different reasons. Who's going to win by how much and why? Yeah, I mean, this is a game which being at Optus, in my opinion, means completely open for debate in terms of who's going to win because you can't give a home ground advantage. Um, so at that point, you've just got to pick who's better on the day. Um, and I think based on that premise, I'd be picking Melbourne because I think, oh, by the way, before I explain my reasons, let's just hope for games that were as good as the round 23 games because this is round 23 all over again. Both games decided by one and two points. If we can get let's anything... Hope, let's hope with the yeah, exact same yeah. results. The <laughs> yeah. exact same results. Well, well, I, I'd argue the results, no, but the margins I'd be happy with. Um, and I, we'll get on to that later why I want a different result for one of the games. But um, I think that, like I said, it comes down to who's better on the day. And I think both teams at their best, arguably, I'd actually take Geelong. I think Geelong on their day are one of, if not the best team in the competition on their day. But the problem is Geelong are quite inconsistent in terms of being at their absolute best. They'll be at their absolute best probably maybe six or seven times this season. And they've had a lot of games where they haven't been at that level. Um, whereas Melbourne might not necessarily be quite as strong in terms of at their absolute best being as good as Geelong, but they're a very consistent, very good team. And they, you know, for probably the best part of 18, 19 games this year have looked like, you know, on form, they're the best team with a few anomalies in there. Um, so I think based on consistency and the fact that I think Geelong, are, you know, got a pretty shoddy finals record. Um, and, you know, we all want it to happen unless, of course, you're a Geelong fan. I'm going to pick Melbourne um, and I'm going to pick them to win by 19 points. Geelong have really struggled this year against some of the better defences in the competition. And there's no defence in the competition as strong as Melbourne with their two key pillars in that back line, especially Lever and May. I genuinely think that Geelong can't kick a high enough score to beat the Ds. On top of that, Melbourne's forward line is absolutely, for lack of better description, purring. It's going really, really well, the Demons. They were struggling for a while, but ever since that game against Gold Coast, where they won by nine the pit- points. They've got the pitchforks out, Casper. They have, they've got the pitch. <laughs> and they're digging them in. Hell, hell is starting to freeze over. Starting to freeze over. Satan has gotten his ice maker out, right? But he hasn't just he hasn't turned it on just yet. But the D's are, I think their forward line functions better than Geelong's more consistently. Their back line is more solid than Geelong's, especially with Tom Stewart still being out for this game. It'll come down to a battle of the midfield. Right, we've got Dangerfield, Selwood, amongst others, whose names I have suddenly forgotten. I forget the likes of some of the best players. Uh, three among a few others who rotate in there. Yeah, exactly. I get up against the likes Narkel. of Salem, Salem, Petrarca, amongst others. They, the demons, Oliver, are so loaded. Oliver. The demons are so loaded. Honestly. We talk about how star-studded the Bulldogs' forward line is. Uh, sorry, midfield is. But I reckon Melbourne's midfield gives them a run for their money, just on paper with the names in there. Like, it's pretty close. 
So with all that, oh, and especially let's not discuss the ruck, the ruck situation with Geelong and their merry-go-round of, of uh, ruckmen. They're coming up against the best ruckmen in the competition, comfortably the best ruckmen in the competition. And one of the tallest too. I don't know that stat for sure, but he looks like one of the tallest. They're going to struggle. I predict they're going to lose the clearances. They're going to lose the hitouts. Uh, to be honest with you, out of these two games, I think this one's the easiest to predict. I'm tipping Melbourne by 29 points. If it's any more win. than that, I'd be surprised. But at the same time, if it's less than that, I think I, I wouldn't be as surprised because it could be a close game. I don't think it's going to be, though. On to Saturday night football at the Adelaide Oval. It's the power and the Bulldogs. Will Bontempelli play? Waitman won't play. Will Bontempelli be in? Battle of the forward lines. Norton versus Dixon. Battle of the back lines. You've got Easton Wood versus Aaliyah Aaliyah. And more importantly, battle of the midfield and battle of possibly two of the best players in the competition and two of the firm favorites for the Brownlow medal, I reckon. Ollie Wines versus Marcus Bontempelli. So I want to ask you this, Liam. Can your dogs pull off the miracle for the third week in a row? They've been to Tasmania. They've been to Brisbane. They're in Perth at the moment, and they'll have to fly to Adelaide. Will they be flying back to Perth for the grand final, or will they be heading back with their tail between their legs back to Melbourne? Big build-up. Big build-up here. I've talked this game a lot. (laughs) Well, obviously, you know, I don't know if I'd be claiming for a miracle a third week in a row. Let's be real, you know, no disrespect to Westerton, but I don't think people were going into that game expecting the Bulldogs to lose. Uh, oh, yeah, majority, sure. You meant no disrespect at all by that. <laughs> well, look, you've already taken a dig at some of my teams, so I had to make sure I got my dig in there as well. Um, but, you know, everything points to Port Adelaide, <laughs> to be fair. By the way, folks, I'm getting the finger right now, just to let you know. Our host isn't as graceful and nice as hey, it comes that's across. Fake news. That's <laughs> fake news. Okay, that's fake news. I do not do that. I am a respectful, respectful member of society, okay? Um, but on the topic of the game, aside from our host, um, everything points to Port Adelaide. Um, you know, the dogs have injury concerns. Obviously, like Casper's uh, already mentioned, Cody Waitman's out. Uh, Pally isn't a guarantee to be in the game. Um, and I think that, you know, Port Adelaide have won their last seven in a row. Um, so form-wise, they're flying. They've come off the back of a break, which is debatable, though, albeit. I think a lot of people would say that the break can be both positive and negative in a sense. It gives your players a chance to reset, a chance to you know recover, but at the same time, you can lose your, your form in a sense because you've been flying for you know seven straight weeks in Port Adelaide's case, and then all of a sudden it gets put to a break. You don't know. You could lose a little bit of your mojo in that time. Um, and I wouldn't put it past the Bulldogs. You know, they pulled off the miraculous win over at the Gabba um, and, you know, players like Bontempelli and Easton Wood and the crew, et cetera, that they've got could easily turn up and pull off another miracle. But I think logic points to Port Adelaide. And as much as I want to see the Dogs win, I won't tip them um, as much. As, like, I'll be absolutely thrilled if they do. But I think logic for me says I've got to pick Port Adelaide to win by 25 points. Finally, thinking logical about the Dogs. I'm I've learned my lesson. I've learned my lesson two weeks in a row. I said the dogs will lose comfortably. I've learned my lesson. I'm saying they will lose narrowly. 
it'll be a great game of football. Let's admit, these two teams are arguably two of the best teams this year. Okay, maybe Melbourne's top, but these two teams are second and third, I think, if you look at it overall the entire season. And now we have the top four, right? I think this top four is the best, the, the actual top four best teams this season. I'm not just saying that because they're the only teams in standing still, but if you look at it over the course of the year, the D's, the power, the dogs and the cats have been in some order or another, the best four teams in the competition this year. No offense, Brisbane, but let's admit, you guys were. Let's not <laughs> Hold on a second. They should have beaten Geelong in round two if it wasn't because of bad umpiring. So they were unlucky there, but then they were lucky to sneak into the top four in round 23. So it kind of balances it out. Yeah. As for this game, Bont and Pally out is huge. Really, really, really big. He just, it's just even if he's playing poorly, it's just that on-field leadership that he brings. He's arguably the best captain in the competition because of that on-field leadership. And I think they're going to struggle without him in that department. But at the same time, they're so star-studded there, they might, might be able to cover for him. Not enough, I think, to actually win. I'm tipping the power by about two to three goals. I think that's all the topics that we uh, plan to discuss. So I'm going to Sounds say... Like Thank you, Liam, for joining me for this episode. I wish you well for Saturday night. I hope it's a good game of football. And if the dogs make it through, then wow, what a storyline. Yeah, I'll, I'll be eagerly sitting on my couch with uh, all the hopes of a repeat of last weekend. And uh, I will be eagerly texting you, regardless of the results, especially <laughs> if you lose. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of the Through the Banner podcast. My name is Casper McLeod. Join me and uh, oh, several co-hosts over the next week or two to review not just the prelim finals, but the final series as a whole and preview the decider in Perth Saturday afternoon, September 25th. So long as there's not a COVID outbreak in Perth before that, it should be an awesome grand final regardless of the matchup. Until then, adios. Mon ami. Ooh, combining two languages in one. How about that?